0: Praise God for the blessing of being able to hear those great truths from those sweet, tiny little mouths. What a blessing to hear our children here at Four Corners sing those great truths. Our prayer for them as parents and as those who are leading them in various capacities within this church is that those truths more and more as they grow would become the heartbeat of their lives, that those words would be the truth that swims through their veins, that those words would be the meditation of their hearts, and that they would affirm uh, from the heart entirely that Christ is their only hope in life and death. That's our prayer for all of them and our prayer for us. It's a blessing to be gathered again to Look at God's Word together. This is another aspect of our worship service. So uh, we have been worshiping all along and we are worshiping now. It's not that uh, singing is worship and this is something different. But this is a way we worship God is by studying His Word, by reading it. Together, collectively, and by seeking to understand it as it is explained and as it is heard. Uh, so, this is a time for us to fasten on our minds and to dig into God's truth. And today, we are just looking at one verse, and that will be Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. So, if you would go ahead and go there now, Exodus 20, verse 7. As we work our way through the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, we are now in the Ten Commandments, that well-known passage of Scripture. We get it again in Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments, but this is one of two passages in the Bible where we get the Ten Commandments listed out for us. And here we are today at the Third Commandment. So the title for the sermon this morning is the Third Commandment Honoring God's name honoring God's name so far with the first and second commandments our focus has been on idolatry And so we've talked about a lot of the same things. As we looked at the first commandment, the second commandment, we saw the the overlap. We we did see the distinction between the two commandments. We recognize that some in church history have uh, lumped all of that material together as the first commandment and divided out uh, the commandment on coveting to get ten. But we understand that those commandments are distinct, the first and the second. Yet there is great overlap. So we've looked at the first and second, and our focus in both has been on idolatry. God has commanded his people to have no other gods in his presence. I I like the image of having any other god in his face. Uh, It's uh, even antagonistic language, the language of, of, of being against God. And some have even translated that against his face, that any idol is an affront To God. Any false God is an affront, necessarily is an affront to the true God. Only Yahweh is to be worshipped. He alone is God, and we worship Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, this morning. That's who we worship as Christians. And we saw that emphasis on God as the God of Israel when we came to Romans chapters nine through eleven. We saw the emphasis that Paul put on God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that we've been grafted in as Gentiles, that we've become offspring of Abraham, the prototype of belief. So we recognize that this morning we're gathered here, Gentile peoples, largely, maybe even exclusively Gentile peoples, whose ancestors had no hope in the world, as Paul says in Ephesians, And we are gathered here this morning to worship Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. That is our God. There are to be no substitutes and no supplements. Nothing alongside of God, nothing above God. We might be prepared to say, okay, nothing above God, but it's a little more difficult to say nothing alongside of God. God and all the other things that I hold dear and precious and prize and find my joy in. God plus, Yahweh plus. The first commandment shatters the plus sign. It destroys the plus. No substitutes and no supplements. And he has commanded his people That this worship is not to take place through images. So he's commanded his people there are to be no gods other than him. No gods in place of him. And he has told them that they are not to worship through images. The people are not to worship idols of any kind. Idols of other gods which is covered already under the first commandment. But also idols of Yahweh. And that means that there is to be no substitute in our own mind for Yahweh as he reveals himself in Scripture. We must worship him as he is. And he is as he has revealed himself in the pages of the Bible. The people are to worship Yahweh alone and they are to do so based on what God has revealed. God's people are not to invent their own gods, and listen to this, nor are they to invent their own ways of worshiping the true God. So if we were to tie together the first and second commandments, what we find is singular devotion based on scripture. I think if we could, in our minds today, figure out what what is the essence of the first and second commandment, if you tie them together, given how how closely uh, connected they are, if we tie the two of them together, I think what we're looking at here for us, as we set our minds to worship God alone, is singular devotion based on Scripture. And here's the thing. If we do not base our worship of God on Scripture It will not be singular devotion. It will be something other than worship of the true God. We are very good at changing God's nature to accommodate our sin. We are very good at at morphing God into something other than who he really is so that he can just take in all the things that we want in life. We try to coerce God. We try to control God. Transform God. So this must be singular devotion based entirely on his word. I was listening to a John Piper sermon last night and just really set my heart on fire. He was talking, as Piper always does, about joy. And I think what we are looking at as we think about the first and second commandment together is an all-consuming joy in the one true God. Piper makes the point that the way you actually praise something or someone is by your satisfaction in that object. That the extent to which you are satisfied in that object, you are pleased in that object, You receive pleasure in that object is the extent to which you are praising it. And so as we think about the first and second commandment, we are looking at all-consuming joy in the Lord. That's what it means to obey from the heart, in the power of the Spirit, through Christ, the first and second commandments. Now... We know from Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 22 verse 37 that really what we're talking about here is loving God. That's what we're talking about, loving God. That is what is being defined for us as we're unpacking these commandments. Many people say they love God. Uh, You will hear that from a lot of mouths. Yes, I love God. Yes, I love God. Do you love God? You probably would get Many people, if we just go out and begin to ask, that would say, oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love God. But if we want to know what it means to love him, to truly love him, we need to look here at the Ten Commandments. And particularly at the first four. As we saw from Matthew 22, as we began this, this little mini-series within the series of Exodus, what we saw is that Jesus defines the commandments or he encapsulates the commandments in these two. To love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the whole law and the prophets. And what we find, interestingly, is that in the Ten Commandments, the first four deal explicitly and specifically with love of God. They have a, a, a very explicit vertical dynamic. And the latter six deal with the horizontal dynamic aspect, love of neighbor. And so as we are looking at these first four commandments, we are beginning to hang some meat on the skeleton of this idea that can be quite vague of loving God. Loving God. That's a big idea. It's a big, sometimes vague idea that we need clarity on, we need substance to. And what these first four commandments do is they help us understand in our practical living, in our daily lives, what it means to truly love God. It's not a merely a sentimental thing, although it is found in our affections. We recognize that love of God stirs the heart. Love of God moves the soul, that it, that it very much impacts the emotions. But it's not merely an emotional thing, not merely a sentimental thing. It, it is an aspect of our obedience to God as we cling to him and adore him and honor him and are devoted exclusively to him. That's what it means. To love him. You can have all the fluttery feelings about God that you could possibly imagine and disobey him and live for your own glory and your own self. That is not love. That is not covenant loyalty. That is not loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Today, our focus shifts from idolatry to God's name first two commandments, dealing with idolatry, dealing with false worship. And now we move to God's name, honoring God's name. One of the ways we love God is by honoring his holy name. Maybe that's not something you've really put together before. And I think in our culture, as I said before, the sentimental way that we define love, it just strips it of any substance. But here we see that one of the ways we concretely love God God is by honoring his holy name. Today, as we've already talked about, is Palm Sunday. And I think about the words of the people as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. We read this in John chapter 12, verse 13. These are the people as Jesus is approaching and entering Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And what were they saying? They were crying out, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, even the king of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen to how John frame... Relates Christ to the third commandment. I love the way he ties Christ so explicitly into these first three commandments. And here particularly the third. This is what he writes. God's name is located par excellence in Jesus Christ. The only name given by which we must be saved. To which every knee shall bow. So the third commandment is fulfilled in Jesus. When we think name of God, we should think Jesus. He goes on to say, We have seen that Jesus is our exclusive object of worship. First commandment. And the true image of God. Second commandment. Now we see that he is the name of God, par excellence. To despise the name of God is to despise Jesus and vice versa. Maybe you haven't put those two things together before. That to misuse the name of God, to dishonor the name of God, to not treat as holy the name of God is to dishonor Christ himself, who is the name of God incarnate, who is the name of God par excellence. If you would please stand with me as we read our passage together. And we will read, as we've been doing through the Ten Commandments, we will read Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17, though our focus today will be only on verse 7. (coughs) This is the word of God. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then our verse for today, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless ...and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You can go ahead and be seated. So that's what we'll be looking at as we go through, and we're in the third commandment today. So let's pray and ask for God's grace to give us understanding of his word, that he would convict our hearts, that he would lift us up. You know, we're all in different places. Isn't it amazing uh, this morning that the Holy Spirit is working in each of us That the Holy Spirit is able to see precisely the way in which this text, the way in which this sermon needs to be sort of served up, as we think about God's word as food, needs to be served up to the palate of each of us. The way in which it needs to be injected into every individual heart. The Holy Spirit can do that work. And so let's pray that he would in every single one of us. Father, we thank you That you have given us the holy scriptures. You have given us your word to feed us. And you have told us blessed is the one who meditates on it day and night. Who delights in it. Who loves your word. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to love it practically in listening in laying open our hearts before your face and letting the text fall upon each of our hearts. Lord, we are all nowhere near where we ought to be. Not a single one of us is anywhere close to being perfectly like Christ. So Father, we greatly need your penetrating graces this morning as you take your word And you root out sin. You show us the motives of our hearts. And you bring us great joy in loving you rightly. In loving you concretely. Father we pray that your word would grow us and sanctify us this morning as you promise that it will do. We pray that we would worship as we listen. And that our hearts would sing your praises from deep in our souls. God, we thank you that you have given these commandments to show the way of God, the will of God, to show us what it means to be Christ-like. You haven't left us with some vague notion of holiness, some vague idea of what it means to grow. But Lord, you have given us your perfect law, which is holy and righteous and true. And you have put it on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And day by day, you are conforming us more and more into the likeness of this law. And Father, we thank you that one day we will be perfect law keepers. Through Christ, who was indeed in this world the perfect law keeper. And who will one day make us entirely blameless according to your perfect will. We praise you for that, God. We look forward to that day as we grieve over our sin. As we consider the weight of it, the effects of it. As we consider all the ways that it dishonors you and tramples on Christ and his glory, his matchless glory. Father, we pray for your forgiveness and we thank you that it is found in Jesus. And so we praise you for our redemption. Lord, we thank you now for this verse and we pray that it would be used by you to sanctify us in Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) So this third commandment offers three major things for our consideration. And as I've said before, if you go and get any major uh, book on Christian ethics, what most of them will do, and especially in the Reformed tradition, what most of them will do is they will unpack the Ten Commandments. And so there will be extensive, going down to the bottom of the well kind of treatment. And what you realize is that, interestingly, each commandment, in a sense, covers all of life. That's, that's the craziest thing about it. each commandment, not just, not just the collectively, but each commandment could actually cover all of life and, and the way that they blend together and are interconnected into this beautiful whole. And we know that because they came together perfectly in unison in the person of Christ. So they, they sing with one voice. And so really, there's so much that you could say about each of the commandments But today we're going to look at three major considerations. Just taking the text for what it says, following along. So these are the three points if you want to write them down. So this morning we're going to look at the name, the sin, and the guilt. The name, the sin, and the guilt. So first, the name. At the center of verse 7... Is the name. The name. The holy name of God. And let me just say that this most immediately has to do with Yahweh. The holy name of God. The covenant name of God. But by extension it would encompass any of God's names. As he has revealed himself in scripture. Any referent to God. To this Yahweh, here at the center, is the name, the holy name of God. This is the issue in the third commandment. This is the focus. God's name is holy, and it is to be honored. And let me just remind you what it means to be holy. To be holy is to be set apart. There is God's name is in a category all by itself. There's nothing else in that category. We recognize that all sorts of things are made holy by God. We see that with the tabernacle, that the different kinds of, of even the incense that is used there is not to be used for other purposes, we read. That, that the, these things are holy. They are set apart for special use. But the name of God is distinct from everything. It is in a category Of one. It is set apart, distinct, it is holy. We have seen this emphasis on God's name already in Exodus. It's actually been a big theme all along. And this is really important. I was telling someone recently, I was talking with a fellow pastor, and he was saying that they did a series on the Ten Commandments. And and I was just sharing with him the joy of actually coming up on the Ten Commandments out of Exodus rather than just sort of dropping into the Ten Commandments and doing a series on the Ten Commandments and just starting fresh, but to actually be able to see the way in which the Ten Commandments come up out of the narrative of Exodus. And we have already seen much about God's name. The plagues, we spent ten weeks looking at the, well nine weeks I think, looking at the plagues. The plagues were meant to show God's Glory, that's what the plagues were about. The plagues were about God's name, his glory. To highlight the truth that he alone is the true and living God. That's what the plagues accomplished. This is what the Lord told Pharaoh through Moses in Exodus nine sixteen, <coughs> Very explicitly, Moses, by the Lord, says this. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, Pharaoh, To show you my power, and here's the purpose of all the plagues. Here's the purpose of this entire event, this entire story, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's the purpose of the plagues. That's the purpose of all that God does. That's the purpose of your salvation and my salvation, is that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That God's name might be proclaimed For eternity, by our mouths, by other saints, and by God's holy angels. That's the reason God saved us, ultimately. It's not just about us. It's not about us, ultimately, at all. It is about the glory of God's name. And the reason for this is because God's name, think of it this way, God's name is full. God's name is packed. The names of the idols are empty, but God's name is full. All the gods of Egypt, all their names you could go through and list, all the different deities of ancient Egypt, all the so-called gods, all the demonically inspired false gods, and they are absolutely empty, like air, like breath. They... In contrast to God, whose name is full, are empty. And that is because the gods of Egypt are nothing. Their names are empty because they are nothing. Their names are empty because they themselves are empty. By stark contrast, Yahweh is infinite. He is eternal, He is sovereign and omnipotent. He is omnipresent and omniscient. If the names of idols are empty, then what is God's name? If if an idol is nothing, if a false god doesn't even exist, it is nothing but breath, and therefore empty, the name is empty, then what are we to make of God's name, the infinite, eternal, sovereign God? As full as full can be. And we see throughout scripture that God equates himself with his name. The name of God is another way of saying God himself. It's another way of thinking in our own minds God himself. His name is who he is and encapsulates His character and attributes. Listen to the logic of Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. This was part of our reading, our scripture reading this morning. But listen to the logic of it. So the content of it is important. We'll talk about that too. But listen to the logic of God's name in relation to his person, his essence, his being. Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then he said, the Lord, well, uh, that's in a moment. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Do you see the logic? God proclaims his name. He proclaims his character and his attributes. God's name is equated with his very essence, with his being, with who he is. And I also want you to notice this. When God proclaims who he is, he proclaims two great pillars of his being. He is the God of steadfast love and grace and kindness and mercy, and he is the God of judgment and wrath and punishment of sin. To speak of God in a way that truncates God, to speak of God in a way that does not match the way that God has revealed himself here is to speak of God falsely. Before we even get into all the other things that we're going to say, to, to talk about God, to preach about God as though he has no wrath, as though he has no judgment, as though he does not punish sin, is, hear me, to take the name of the Lord in vain. It is to speak falsely of God. How many preachers get up on Sunday morning and take God's name in vain? How many people sharing the gospel? Wanting to be loved by the world? Wanting not to offend? Loving the praise of men? Take God's name in vain. This is how God has revealed himself. This is who God is. We find this equation of God's name and his essence in several passages. Let me just give you a few examples. I'll give you four. (coughs) So, Proverbs 18:10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? On the surface, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Well, it is another way of saying that the Lord is a strong tower. God's name and God's person, his ability to protect, his ability to defend are united and equated. Psalm 20, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Once again, may the God of Jacob protect you. Psalm 30 verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. We give thanks to God's name. That's another way of saying we give thanks to God for who he is. For what he does For how he loves. John 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him. Speaking of Christ. Who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. To believe in Christ's name. To call upon the name of the Lord. Is another way of saying to believe in Christ. To call on Christ. So I think you get the point. I won't continue To go on and on. But there we see God's name equated with his person. So we see the gravity of it. To dishonor God's name is to dishonor him. And going back to the first two commandments, how are we loving and worshiping God if we are dishonoring his name? We can't. We can't love God and worship God if we are dishonoring his name. And I want you to also... Consider this about idolatry. You know, we've talked, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about idol worship and the idols that we have, the idols that we set up in our lives. And and so we're, we're meant to think through how is it that we are to not worship false gods? How is it that we are to not chase after idols? Well, I think one of the ways we are to understand that is here. We cannot dishonor God's name without shrinking him in our minds. You could say, say it this way, that to dishonor God's name is to make him little. It's to make him tiny. It's to evaporate God of meaning and glory. Shrinks him in our minds. And when God gets smaller, guess what happens? Idols get bigger. When we misuse God's name, he gets smaller and idols get Bigger. When God's name is big and bright in the heart of a Christian, then God will be big and bright. And when God is big and bright, all the idols of this world will be small and dim. And this is important to consider that the the primary way that we fight idolatry is to cling to God. It's a positive response more than it is a negative response. It it, it is to, to go to God. It is to pursue God. It is to take hold of God, to treasure God, to honor God more than it is to introspectively figure out where all the idols are and start aiming and shooting at all of them. That, of course, is part of it. But most fundamentally it is to see God as so huge, so amazing, so wonderful that there's just no room for that trash. There's just no room for those substitutes and those supplements. God is just so heavy and so bright that anything else pales in comparison. So we see here how the commandments are intertwined. When we misuse God's name, we shrink him and the idols grow. So as we break the third commandment, we begin to break the first and the second as well. So we see the name. Second, we see the sin. Now that we have a basic understanding of the importance of God's name, and I want to emphasize a basic understanding, there's so much that could be said on God's name But now that we have that in place, let's read the command. What are God's people not to do? What is the sin that must be avoided? Here's what it says. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, of the Lord your God, in vain. Or as the NIV more freely renders it, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. So what is Moses saying? To take the name or to take it up or to lift it up implies on one's lips or in one's speech. Now, it doesn't say that explicitly here. And that's why there's a broader understanding of what's going on here in the commandment. But it is understood, I think, in this language that we have of taking it up on one's lips. You would say the name of God. And so that's also implied through the name itself. This idea is spelled out more explicitly in Psalm 16, 4, where the language is used very much with regard to speech. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out, and here's the the parallel, or take their names on my lips. You see the same language being used there, and it has to do there with a connection to speech. And then the final words, in vain. In vain. These words in vain can be rendered in various ways. They can be translated for emptiness or for nothing or for no good or to no purpose or to falsehood. And now you see why translators are oftentimes wrestling with these things, right? Why there are different English translations and the different ways that this understanding, uh, that this idea can be rendered. But it's been understood in all of these various ways. This word is used For something false, in Exodus 23, 1, you shall not spread a false report. Same word there, clearly having to do with something that is false. And it is used to convey the idea of no purpose in Jeremiah 46, 11. So listen to the way Jeremiah uses the word. In vain you have used many medicines. And then we get an understanding for what he means in the second clause. There is no healing for you. So in other words... By saying in vain, you have used various medicines, what it's saying is to no effect, to no purpose. So there's an idea here connected to this of falsity, of falsehood, and there's an idea connected here of without purpose, without effect, Now, many commentators agree that the language here is intentionally general. Remember, the Ten Commandments are big picture principles. They're, They're meant to be like umbrellas over all sorts of ethical things, right? So it makes sense that the language here would be more general in nature with many different kinds of applications. It is meant to cover a whole host of ways that God's name could be dishonored. And this is why one commentator, Douglas Stewart, translates it generally as to raise up Yahweh's name for no good. Very general idea there. So when we pull all of this together, I think there are several things in view as we think about dishonoring God's name. What are the sins that we are to avoid? What are the things as we grow in Christ-likeness that we are to flee from, that we are to avoid, that we are to fight Satan on when it comes to this commandment well we break the third commandment when we use god's name falsely blasphemously playfully or casually aimlessly and hypocritically so as i said there's more that could be said but we're at least going to touch on those things so we're going to look at the first one now falsely if you didn't get those written down just catch them as i go through them so first falsely One of the key verses for understanding what the third commandment means is Leviticus 19 verse 12 It's very explicit there you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God I am the Lord So we know That whatever else the third commandment has to do with, that it has to do with swearing falsely by God's name. And we recognize that oaths played a major role in ancient society. And this was the case in Israel as well. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 13, the Lord says this. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So the Israelites were not to swear by the false gods. They they were to swear by the true God. They were to swear by Yahweh's name. And we know that when we come to the New Testament and the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches against casual personal oath taking. But it's been pointed out that what Jesus is saying there, we talked about this when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is saying there cannot be a prohibition against all oath taking because we see Paul himself taking oaths in his epistles. For example, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul very explicitly says this For God is my witness. Well, that's an oath. I bring God as a witness in the witness stand in this courtroom that what I am about to say is true. We see that a couple times in Romans. I am bringing God in as a witness to what I am about to say. And then he goes on to say how I yearn for you with all with with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is calling God as a witness. He is taking an oath in God's name. And so we recognize that this commandment specifically prohibits doing that deceitfully. What if Paul had said that just to gain favor? What if Paul had said that because he maybe wanted more money or he just thought it would be kind to say, right? This would be polite, but politeness can get us into trouble, Right? He's he just going to be polite. He just wants to be nice. And so he, he exaggerates his language. He inflates his language. And he says something here with God as his witness that is not true. That would have been sin. That would have been breaking the third commandment. To, go, to call God as witness to something that is false. And, and so as we go through each of these, I want to look at the contrast. The contrast is honesty. The contrast to to this falsity, to falsehood with regard to God before God's face is honesty. When we are speaking, and particularly with regard to the Lord, we are to speak not with falsehood, but with honesty. Second, to break the third commandment is to speak blasphemously, to blaspheme. To blaspheme means to speak against. That's what it means. Leviticus 24, verses 15 to 16 says, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Remember, after Job's calamities, all that stuff happens to Job. It's absolutely horrific. Well, we read that and we think we can understand. We don't understand. What Job went through in scripture is absolutely horrendous. Children dead. He's just stripped everything. Maximum suffering. What does his wife say? Curse God and die. Your life is nothing. Curse God and just die, Job. It is to blaspheme the Lord. It is to impugn God's character, to use his name in a way that does not lift him up as the God that he is in splendor and glory and faithfulness and power, but it is to tear God down, to use his name in a way that does not lift him up but tears him down. And so here, I just want you to consider the effect of grumbling. We talked about grumbling before, and you may not think that you know, grumbling really has anything to do with the third commandment, but just consider what's happening when we grumble as Christians. We know God's in charge. In our soul of souls, in our heart of hearts, in our inner being, as Paul says in Romans 7, 22, we know God is in charge. Things aren't going our way. We, we may think we're directing it at the lawnmower or the dishwasher or our, our, our friend or our child or, or spouse or coworker, worker but, but really, where's it going? Where's the grumbling going? It's just going right up to the Lord. To impugn his name, to impugn his character. Fussing at the Lord. We recognize there's a place for lament. There's a place for pouring our hearts out to God. We talked about that when we talked about grumbling. But just consider what is involved. When in discontent and lack of joy and lack of gratitude, we shake our fist or even our pinkies at the Lord our God. Because we're just not happy. I should be happier. I should be more comfortable I should have more money by now. Why am I still sick? Whatever. Grumbling against the Lord. The contrast to this is gratitude and praise. It is to live always before the Lord with this exuberant praise, this joy in God. That is the opposite of blasphemy. The opposite of blasphemy is to live Sleep and breathe grateful praise unto the Lord. Third, we break the third commandment. We disobey God. We do not follow God's will when we speak playfully or casually with regard to God's name. And here I would put the word casually or flippantly. It is to treat God's name like a game is to treat God's name like a petty thing, like a playful thing, like something to be tossed around at will without regard for its holiness. You know, we all have those things. You know, I even have certain books. I have a lot of books, and some of them are ones that you get off the shelf very carefully, and you open up very carefully, you even smell it, it smells very nice, and you, you, you flip the pages, and, and then you carefully put it back onto shelf. And then there are those books where I'm quite happy to leave on the table where my two-year-old will take a bite out of the corner or spill water on it or whatever else. It's just, it, it, it won't be that much of a big deal to me if that book happens to perish under the weight of a toddler. That is the difference in how we treat God's name. Is it like that thing that we, that we put up in a holy place, in a separate place, in a place so that, it, so that it is kept intact, so that it is looked at well? Or is it just thrown in the corner on the floor like our socks? At the end of the day, how often do we treat God's name like dirty socks? <clears throat> we could put expletives here like, oh my God, when people say that. In a non-worshipful way, this may seem extreme, but since our kids were little, we have uh, sh- we have tried to get them not to even say "Oh my gosh." There's other ways you can say that: "Wow," "Oh man," "Oh my goodness," or whatever else. But "Oh my gosh" sounds so much like "Oh my God," but we use it all the time. And sometimes we speak so fast that it really sounds like we're saying "Oh my God." Just Throwing God's name out there. Tossing it around. Or the way we speak of Jesus. You hear people sometimes get angry. I was sitting next to a guy on the plane as I was going to the conference in California. And I just heard him just in anger just say Christ's name. Just so so angry because his, his computer wasn't working. God and Jesus and Lord These are holy. These are holy words. We could put irreverent humor here. Not humor in and of itself. Humor is part of our being made in God's image. It's a wonderful thing. And when we see the wit and the intelligence involved in good humor, it really does glorify God and the genius that God has given humanity. When something is truly funny, And yet we recognize that sometimes our humor is irreverent, that it treats God's name playfully and casually and flippantly. It fails to treat God's name with the gravity that it deserves. So the contrast here to speaking of God playfully or casually is just reverence. It's reverence, it's awe. It is beholding God with his names. As something not to be used lightly. And I I was talking to our kids about this with some of the songs that use the word hallelujah. That's holy. Hallelujah means praise Yahweh. And the way some of these singers and artists throw around hallelujah. That's praise of Yahweh. May that not be found flippantly in any of our mouths. Or any of the mouths of our children. We are talking here about reverence. And fourth, it is to speak or use God's name aimlessly. You could also say here mindlessly. This is connected to what we just said, but it is a little different sometimes. In our Christian speech, we do this, or even in our prayers, we use the name of God repeatedly as filler language. This is one of those subtle things, and sometimes we don't, we don't even really think about it. That's the whole problem, right? That's the whole problem, is that we're not thinking. We're just using our Christian vocabulary with all God's names, just casually, aimlessly, mindlessly, not as holy. The point here is that God's name is not a filler. It is not another way of saying, uh, no. God's name is not uh. Something between sentences because we can't think of anything else to say. His name is holy. The contrast here is intentionality. It is using our words with precision, with care, and especially when it comes to the name of the Lord, our God, our Redeemer, the one who brought us out of slavery and made us his children. Fifth, And finally, we do this when we live out our lives hypocritically. As we think about taking up God's name, we recognize that this applies first and foremost to our speech. To take up God's name... When we speak, And I've said that already, that, that that's, that's the most obvious way to understand what it means to take up God's name. It implies the, the use of the verb with, uh, and we, we looked at a parallel, and then the idea of God's name. You would say God's name, and we talked about falsely using God's name in oath. So we know that that's primarily what's in view here. But we also recognize that as Christians, we bear God's name all the time. Think about this. We are Christians. We bear Christ's name. Remember, Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. We, we look at that, na- at that language, it etymologically comes from the name of Christ. We bear his name. We carry his name around with us everywhere we go. And so I think this commandment also touches on hypocrisy. We lift up God's name to falsehood when our profession of faith doesn't match our lives. When we say we're for God, but then we live like the world. Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I love God. And then we just smear our faces in the same grime, the same sewage that the world does. That's not honoring God's name. That's not keeping the third commandment. Are we not lifting up God's name to emptiness, to no purpose, to no good, to falsehood when we hypocritically carry out our Christian lives, when we say one thing and do another? Of course we are. And the contrast to this is integrity. Love from a pure heart, not to please people, but from a pure heart. Integrity of life, not like those Pharisees Doing what they do before the eyes of people. But living the same way. When you go on a trip. And you're in a hotel room. All by your lonesome self. That you do when you're in your living room. With company over. With your wife and your children. That's upholding God's name. The same. All the time. Because we bear it. Finally and briefly as we finish up. We see the guilt. The name, the sin, and the guilt. Look at the latter part of verse 7. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless. Who takes his name in vain. Here I want to make just one general observation. Misusing God's name does not go unnoticed. God makes a special mention of that here. Now, we know that no sin goes unnoticed, right? But, but God makes special mention here that misusing his name does not go unnoticed. It is a particular affront to the Lord. And so the commandment here mentions the guilt that is incurred by one who does this. Now, we know with blasphemy, as we read earlier, the penalty is death. Here, we're not given any specificity about the penalty. The text just does not get into specific punishments or penalties. We don't find that here. It simply leaves it hanging with guilt. And I think this points us to two things as we close this morning. Two things to walk away with as we think about this idea of guilt. First, guilt really is our major problem. You know, Jesus did not primarily come to wipe our tears away, He didn't primarily come to get rid of sickness. He didn't primarily come to make us happy and joyful. All those things are true, and we see it even in the Gospels, in His ministry. But Jesus primarily came to remove our guilt before God. That's why Christ came. A gospel that does not center on the removal of guilt by the absorption of wrath at the cross is no gospel at all. The gospel centers on Christ's guilt-taking on our behalf at the cross. We are all guilty before God. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. We have all broken this commandment and the commandments put our sin before us. They are a mirror. They show us what we really are. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's Paul in Romans 3 verse 20. We all have dishonored and do dishonor God's name. I and mean, all the things I just said, we can look back and we can say, man, I dishonored God's name right there. I dishonored God's name right there. I dishonored God's name, right dishonored God's name this morning. I dishonored God's name yesterday. I dishonored God's name this past week. We've all done that. God does not hold him guiltless. But here's the beauty of the gospel. And I want to leave you with this this morning. God does hold him guiltless who is clothed in the guiltlessness of Christ. God does Hold him guiltless who is clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Do you know that God will punish you eternally for every single time you took his name in vain apart from Christ? And I haven't even mentioned lust and murder and coveting and stealing and all the things we do. If we just dishonored God's name once, we would deserve hell. It's an eternal sin. It's a sin against an eternal object deserving an eternal punishment. We need Christ. The only way this guilt is removed is through putting our trust in the innocent, substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was perfectly sinless and he took our sin upon himself at the cross, paid for it so that we, by trusting in him, could be free of all guilt. Praise God. That's why, that's why we worship God and we come together on Sunday mornings is because our guilt is removed. Yeah, he's going to get rid of our tears. Yeah, he's going to get rid of our sickness. Yeah, we're not going to age anymore, but we're no longer under God's wrath. We don't have guilt before a holy God anymore. Praise God. How are we bored? How are we discontent? How are we not grateful? Where's our praise? God's not going to eternally destroy us in his judgment because of our sin. All joy. All joy. All joy. Secondly, Here we have a warning about God's discipline. As we read this, we recognize, yes, that our guilt's removed in Christ. But we are also, as Christians, meant to read this and ponder the discipline of the Lord. God disciplines his children. God's not gonna just let us do our own. Do we let our kids do that? I hope not. Just go their own way. Just continue to do the things that they ought not to do. No, we we discipline them. We bring them back into the circle of blessing, as Ted Tripp talks about. We bring them back into the place of honoring and obeying mom and dad. And that's exactly what the Lord does. So scurry on down those side paths. Climb those side mountains and watch the heavy hand of the Lord our God bring you or spank you back into his circle of blessing. The Lord's discipline is real because his love is real. Hebrews 12, he disciplines the son whom he loves. So beware and be warned of the disciplining hand of the Lord our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this commandment which, as Kyle prayed earlier, is grace. It is grace, Lord, because you're instructing us unto the way of eternal happiness in your presence. You're instructing us into the way of pleasures forevermore, into the way of honoring you and relating to you unobstructed. Lord, we thank you that You've given us this teaching, this counsel. We pray, God, that you would help us to obey your word from the heart, by the Spirit, for the glory of Christ. Thank you for this time to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we approach Easter, as we approach approach Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Lord, turn our hearts to you in this very particular time of remembrance. In Jesus' name, amen.